Good morning. Take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel according to John, please, the first chapter. When we think of Christmas sermons, we most often think of the baby Jesus in the manger. We think of the birth of Christ from Matthew and Luke. Each one of the Gospels authors Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each intend to communicate much of the same message, but from different perspectives. Matthew communicates primarily the kingship of the Lord Jesus, and as he describes his birth, he traces his genealogy back to Abraham and associates Jesus Christ with the king of the Jews, which he is. Mark talks about the servanthood of Jesus Christ, Jesus being the man that is the servant of Jehovah. Mark jumps right in and begins with the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. Luke is primarily concerned with indicating to us the humanity of the Lord Jesus, and he traces his genealogy back past Abraham all the way to Adam and associates the Lord Jesus with all of humanity. So it's a reasonable question to ask, why did we select John chapter 1 for a four-sermon series at Christmas time, instead of using the Christmas story that we have so often used before. Well, I would suggest to you that the Christmas story is much broader in scope than what we find just in the manger, certainly a significant and central point. But the true Christmas story has its origins in eternity past, and the true Christmas story extends throughout eternity. And we would like to think of Christmas this year in light of eternity. And to find that, the best place to go is to the gospel according to John. You see, John is primarily concerned with communicating the deity, the Godhead of Jesus Christ. He begins in eternity past, and he declares to us that Jesus is God. We will see that Jesus is Nazareth, the one born in a manger, and died on the cross has infinitely more glory than all the kings of the earth who will ever live. Matthew talks about the kingship of Jesus Christ. John tells us that Jesus Christ is the king of glory. Mark says that the Lord Jesus is the servant of Jehovah. We will read that Jesus humbled himself to take the place of the servant of Jehovah and the savior of his people and he is equal with God in every way as we read through the gospel according to John. We'll read that Jesus, the Son of Man, whom Luke spoke so much of, that Jesus, the Son of Man, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, He is indeed the only begotten Son of God. He is the second member of the triune Godhead. And we'll see that Jesus of Nazareth is eternal God in flesh. The real and true connection to the Christmas story from the first chapter of John is this. Is that eternal God was made flesh, that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself condescended and He humbled Himself in order to save His people. The first 18 verses of John are referred to as the prologue or the introduction. And it has been said by those that are in a position to know that these 18 verses of Scripture are likely 
the highest literature ever written and the most densely packed literature that has ever been written. According to my count, there are 298 words in these first 18 verses. The majority of them are single syllable words. I understand that to be true in the original language as well as in our English. I'm not an original language guy, but I've read that it is so there too. 298 words, 256 of them, that's 86% of them, are single syllable words. And of all the words in the prologue, there are only two that are three syllables or more. That should indicate to us several things. Number one, that the things that John are communicating to us here are truly the Word of God. That these words are truly God-breathed. They are the inspired Word of God. They are inerrant. There is no error in them. They are infallible. They cannot fail. They are sufficient for everything that we need. They are powerful and they are life-changing. And by virtue of the fact that I'm just an old country boy, I take great delight in knowing that 86% of these words are single syllable. You see, this is understandable for Christians. This is the deepest theology that there is to be found anywhere in this book. God has expressed it to us primarily in single syllable words. And with God, the Holy Spirit living within us, we can understand it. The Word of God spoken to us by the Spirit of God, we can understand with the Spirit of God living in us and illuminating the Scriptures to us. My sermon this morning is verses 1 through 5, and I have three points. In verses 1 through 2, we will look at the relationship of Jesus Christ to God. In verse 3, we'll look at the relationship of Jesus Christ to creation. And in verses 4 through 5, the relationship of Jesus Christ to humanity. Let's read the scriptures and pray, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's Word. May He bless the reading and the preaching of it. Let's pray. Father, we come to Your Word this morning acknowledging to You that even though it is single syllables, that it is spiritual in nature, and that if we are to understand it, it must be Your Spirit that lives within us that gives us that understanding. Father, we profess to you this morning that we stand in need of your Spirit's enlightenment. I pray, Father, that as I preach that you would keep me from error. Father, I pray that, uh, that the words that I say would be the words that you would have me to say. Father, I pray that you would give our people ears to hear them. I pray, Father, above all things that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified here this morning and that his people would be encouraged. And We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point is the relationship of Jesus Christ to God. 
And we see that in verses 1 and 2. Look with me at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We cannot miss the reference in the beginning, the reference to Genesis 1 that John read for us earlier. John is intentionally taking us all the way back to the beginning, taking us back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We know that Genesis was inspired of God through the prophet Moses. It's interesting there when, when Moses says in the beginning, he begins to descend into time. But John here, when he refers to whenever the beginning was, he backs up. He ascends back into eternity. He says that when the beginning was, the Word was already there. He's indicating to us by taking us back to that beginning that he's going to be talking to us about a new beginning. There's a continuity from the old beginning to the new beginning, but he's talking about not a physical beginning as we read about in Genesis, but he's talking about a new spiritual beginning that is to be found in Jesus Christ. It's not just a new beginning. It is truly a new creation. It is a new race of people that God is going to create for Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the name Jesus doesn't appear anywhere in verse 1. As a matter of fact, John just speaks of this being as the Word. The Word. He doesn't describe it as Jesus until we get all the way to verse 14, but I'm going to preach it in light of the fact that we know who this is. We know that the Word is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, in your Bible, the word, Word, should be capitalized. It should be capital W-O-R-D. That indicates something in other than just the simple meaning of Word. When John used the word in the original language that we get capital W-O-R-D from, it was deep and it was rich to the Greeks and to the Jews. The Greeks thought of the Word as the supreme universal force that directs and controls all things. Even in their rank polytheism, their lack of understanding of truth about Almighty God, they recognized and realized that there was a supreme force in this universe that directs and controls all things. When the Jews would hear the term, the Word, they thought of that as the means of God for accomplishing His will. You see, they understood that the Word of God is not just informative, it is creative. How is it, according to Genesis chapter 1, that God created everything that there is? It was through speaking His Word. Everything that has been created has been created by the Word of God's power. There is power in the Word of God. There's much more to say about that than we have time. As a matter of fact, there's much more to say about that than I understand. So I'm going to stop at that point. And I just want to talk to you about this. Let's think about our word, word. Word, as we read it here, indicates to us that God speaks and that He reveals Himself to men, does it not? Think about how you use words. Words are how we communicate concepts and ideas to others Concepts and ideas that can't be seen, they can't be drawn, they can't be visualized. We use words to communicate those things. Words are what make thoughts recognizable to others. That's how we communicate our thoughts to others. Words are how knowledge is imparted. Words are how we make our will known. And there's a direct relationship to this being that John refers to that we know who is Jesus Christ as he refers to him as the Word and God communicating those things that cannot be seen to us through him. Making the thoughts 
and the demands and the requirements of God that cannot be seen recognizable to us. It is how the knowledge of God is imparted to us is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that Almighty God makes His will known to us. Now, the Jews weren't clear, but the Greeks were completely lost in terms of what the word was. They thought of it in terms primarily of what? We know that that is not correct. John tells us in verse 2 that he, the word, was in the beginning with God. Notice that personal pronoun he. It does not speak of just a force or an energy or a concept or power. This being that is known as the word is a person. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. In the beginning with God. In the beginning with God. When the beginning came, John clearly says, when the beginning was, the Word already was. The Word has no beginning. He speaks of an eternal presence. That's God. That's God. There there is only one eternal being And that eternal being is God. So when the beginning was, notice, notice, He was with God. But it also speaks of a distinction from the Father. In order to be with someone, there must be a distinction. I hear echoes of Genesis when God said, let us make man in our image. The eternal God we know from the totality of Scripture is a tripartite being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John is communicating to us here that the Word is eternal, that the Word is indeed God. He will make that statement very clear in just a moment. But he suggests to us that there is eternal presence That the Word is eternally in the presence of God the Father. That there is absolute, total unity. That He is toward the Father is what John is communicating here. That there is absolute unity and fellowship and communion between the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Father. No separation. No separation. Do you want to know God? That's a reasonable question for a pastor to ask. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God in a deeper and richer and fuller sense? Do you want to have a deeper knowledge of God? That is found in Jesus Christ alone. And these scriptures testify of Him. The Lord Jesus told His disciples in chapter 14 of this very gospel account, He said, Whosoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you see that the Word, Jesus Christ our Lord, is the revealer of God? Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is God. He is not just the revealer of God to man. He is God Himself. You see, none but God could express God fully and finally and completely. The author to the Hebrews summarizes it in the very first chapter. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus Christ is God. The baby that was born in the manger 2,000 plus years ago is the eternal, self-existent God. Jesus is uncaused. He is the eternal second member of the Godhead. Jesus is fully God. He is co-equal in every way with God the Father and God the Spirit. Yet He is distinct in His personhood from the Father and from the Spirit. Jesus Christ is full deity and He is the full and final revelation by God of Himself to mankind. To summarize my first point, Jesus Christ is God. The second point is the relationship of Jesus Christ to creation. Look with me at verse 3. All things were made through Him, through Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Here, John the Apostle tells us clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of everything that there is. He Himself being uncreated, everything else other than God is created. Before God created, there was only God. There was nothing else. Jesus Christ is that member of the Godhead through whom God created all things that there are. And in John's way of stating things, as he often does, he states it in the positive and then he closes the door by stating in the negative. He said, all things were made through Him. Unless there be any loophole that someone try to take to indicate Otherwise, he says, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ, the uncaused, uncreated God, has spoken everything that there is into existence. This indicates to us clearly that Jesus has all power. Jesus has all power. And he created the universe, he created everything that there is, in order to be the stage upon which he rightfully displays his glory. He who has the power to create, as Neil indicated a moment ago, we don't have that power, do we? We can't create a blade of grass. We can't create a grain of sand, not a molecule of water. The only one who has creative power is Almighty God, the all-powerful God, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the King. He is the King of all. Jesus Christ is the King of glory. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is sovereign. And that word sovereign simply means that He has all power, He has no rivals, and that everything that He does is good and just. That is His relationship to creation. He is King over all. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the King of of glory. The third point this morning is this, is the relationship of Jesus Christ to humanity. Praise God that He is the revealer of God to humanity, the last and final and perfect revealer of God to humanity. But praise God that that's not all He is. 
you recognize and realize, don't you, my friend, that if the Lord Jesus Christ had come down and all He had done was reveal God to us and then He descended back to His home in heaven where He rightfully belongs, you understand that we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins and on our way to hell. Praise God that Christ is not just the revealer, He is also the Redeemer. That He came not just to reveal God, but that He came to redeem the people of God from their sin. And He's not just the Redeemer, my friend, He is also the Judge. And before this sermon is over, if God allows me grace to finish this sermon, I'm going to ask you, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? You have one. The, the, the wrong question is, do you have a relationship to Jesus Christ? Forget that. We've all got a relationship to Jesus Christ. He is either your Savior or He is your judge. He is the revealer of God. He is the redeemer of the people of God. And He is the judge of all who will ever live. <clears throat> Look at verse 4, that first part there. In Him was life. John goes on to say, and the life was the light of men. But, but in Him, in Jesus, was life. Now, now understand... Jesus is not just the source of life. He certainly is that. But He's not just the source of life. Jesus is life. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. Not any life. There is no physical life. There is no spiritual life. There's no eternal life. There's no resurrection life. Jesus Christ is life. And in Him and in Him alone is to be found physical life, spiritual life, eternal life, and resurrection life. Does He not bestow that? There is no life. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that it was, it was Almighty God, the Creator, Jesus Christ Himself, that breathed the breath of life into Adam. It was the Lord Jesus that breathed the Holy Spirit of God onto His disciples in John chapter 20. It was Jesus Christ the Lord that sent God's Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to empower His disciples. It is, it is God that gives physical life and spiritual life. It is God that gives eternal life. It is God in the person of Jesus Christ that gives resurrection life. The Scriptures, God tells us in 2 Timothy, the Scriptures themselves, the written Word, Jesus Christ, the living Word, these Scriptures, the written Word, are God-breathed. It's the breath of Almighty God that caused these words to be written on this page today. These words had power when God breathed them. These words had power when these men wrote these words down. These words have power today as I read them to you or as you read them to yourself. The Word of God has power. It's the living Word of God in there's life in it. The Word of God breathed out by His Holy Spirit is living. This Word has the power to create life. It has the power to recreate life. And it is this Word that has the power to transform lives. There are many testimonies to that truth in this very room. Me being chief among them. God has given me physical life. God has given me spiritual life. And God is in the process of tra transforming my life from the cesspool that it was to the cesspool that it is. It's just not as big as it was before. He's conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ through the power of His Word. There is no other life than Jesus Christ. Jesus told His disciples, He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Those are the words of Jesus. There is no other life than Jesus Christ. Look at the second half of verse 4. And the life was the light of men. And the life was the light of men. John is quick to introduce us to the themes that we're going to see throughout the gospel as you sit and read that. Light and darkness, life and death. The life was the light of men. You see, Jesus is not just the source of light, just as he is not just the source of life. Jesus is not just the source of light. He is light. Jesus Christ is light, and there is no light. There is no light apart from Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, he told his disciples, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see that connection that Christ makes between light and life. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. Clearly indicating that those who do not follow him do walk in darkness. The Lord Jesus is the light of men. The Bible tells us of all men everywhere in all ages. Now there are those that would teach the heresy that that simply means that the Lord Jesus Christ has illuminated everyone, that they will all be saved, that we're all going to heaven. You need not worry about hell. That is a lie from the pit of hell. When we look at Scripture overall, it's clear that not everyone is going to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know where they're going to spend an eternity. They're going to die under the wrath of God and bear the burden of their own sin. Bear God's wrath of their own sin for eternity. That's the folks that don't profess the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible is also very clear. There's lots of folks that have professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either to fool us or maybe unintentionally fooling themselves that don't truly belong to God. They may be exposed to the light. But the light has not penetrated the darkness of their heart and they will die in their sin and they will spend an eternity in a place of physical, conscious torment. Even the religious leaders we read over in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said to them, he said, in that day, he said, you're going to say thanks to me. I'm paraphrasing now. He's going to say thanks to me like, Lord, have we not preached in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done all kinds of good works in your name? He said, my response to them in that day will be, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Does Jesus Christ know me? Does Jesus Christ know you? But the Bible is clear in some way. He is the light of all men, all men everywhere in every age. You see, all the light that we have is from Christ. There is no other light. The light that Jesus Christ is makes all rational humans morally accountable. Paul describes this for us in Romans chapter 2 when he says this about the human conscience that God has placed in every rational human being. Paul said, For when the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now listen to verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In the general revelation that God has given 
In creation, Paul said, there are two things that every rational person can know. Number one, there is a God. Number two, He is all-powerful. And here Paul says that He has placed a conscience in every rational man and woman. Jesus Christ is the light of all men that come into the world in every age. But as we read verse 5, we see this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're reading about the effect of the fall, you see. Adam sinned against God, and he plunged the entire human race into the deep, dark abyss of sin. Adam died spiritually in that garden, and everyone that has descended from Adam has been born spiritually dead. We, we receive that, that uh, a fallen nature through our Father. Hence, in the Christmas story, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ had no earthly father. He was born with no sin nature, and he lived an absolute perfect life. That is not true for me and you. We did inherit that sin nature. We are living in a fallen world. Yet the light shines in the darkness. Jesus shines into the darkness. He shines into the darkness that this world is, that this system is, that is opposed to everything that he does. He also shines a light into the darkness of each and every human being. But because of the effects of the fall, the natural man does not get it. He cannot get it. In the English Standard Version from which I read this morning, the text says that the darkness has not overcome it. In other good, solid English translations, it says that the world doesn't comprehend it. Or excuse me, the darkness doesn't comprehend it, the darkness doesn't understand it, the darkness cannot master it, the darkness cannot perceive it. The idea here of what John is communicating is twofold. Number one, there is a cosmic struggle between light and darkness that is going on, and darkness will not, cannot overcome light. But he's also communicating that there is a battle raging in the heart of every man and woman and those that are spiritually dead, those that are spiritually dead, they're also spiritually blind, and they cannot comprehend, they cannot perceive, they cannot understand the light that is shining all around them. They are blind people in a dark world, and they cannot see the truth. That's the condition that every one of us came into this world in. The Bible says that natural men love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, Paul told the Corinthians. He also told them this, he said, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Natural men, lost men in other words, cannot see the light. But praise God when the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by the effectual call and the power of irresistible grace of Almighty God, blind men see, dead men live, and lost men and women become the sons and daughters of God. That's true for every one of us here this morning that knows Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul told the Ephesians, he said, and these were the Christians at Ephesus he was writing to, he said, for at one time you were darkness. He didn't say you were in darkness. He said, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. They didn't do anything for themselves to transfer themselves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is the grace of God. God saves sinners. 
He told the Colossian Christians, he said, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God saves sinners. He told the Corinthians, he said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God saves sinners. And then in Revelation chapter 22 we read, The day is coming when night will be no more. There will be no darkness. We read, They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Praise God that God saves sinners. Well, I'd like for us to think about these things that we've looked at in these first five verses of John this morning in light of this Christmas season that we're entering into. And there's much there to be discussed, but I'd like for us to just think about the condescension and the humility of our Lord Jesus for just a moment. And as we proceed through the month of December and as we gather to celebrate Christmas, I know most of us in this room profess Jesus Christ to be our Lord. Let us, as we, as we move through this season, let us stop and think in a broader and deeper scope than just the things that maybe we have limited ourselves to at various times. Let's think about the condescension and the humility of Christ that was on full display in the manger on that night that our Lord Jesus was born. But let's think about that condescension and that humility of the Lord Jesus Christ that characterized His entire time on this earth. Now condescension is not a word that I would be able to easily describe to you. I don't know that I could define it. So, so let me tell you what I found about that. Condescension is this. Condescension is voluntarily, keyword voluntarily putting aside one's rights and descending from a position of rank, authority, or dignity down to the level of those who are inferior in order to perform actions which justice does not require. That's what the Lord Jesus did. Do you get that? He laid aside His rights he descended from his position of rank and authority and dignity down to the level of human beings who are certainly inferior to God in order to perform actions that justice does not require. And condescension excludes pride, and it is the evidence of humility. God tells us in Philippians that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. You get that? Jesus Christ was born the same way that you and I were. Only he was born in a dark, dirty manger to a terrified little Jewish girl and a fellow that she was engaged to that probably was more terrified than she was. There could not have been more condescension or more humility. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. There's the, the humility. Humility is simply this. It's a, a lowliness of mind and a submission to the divine will. That's exactly what Christ accomplished in his advent on this earth. Jesus voluntarily took a position beneath his rank and dignity as the eternally begotten Son of God. He took a state that was very low and very unimpressive. He had a standing here that was not esteemed by men in any way. He placed himself in a circumstance that led to the humiliating death on a cross that he suffered for his people. Having been made sin for us and been forsaken by God the Father, he bore the wrath of God for our sins. You see, my brothers and sisters, he was our substitute. He was our substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to save his people from their sins. That's the word of the angel of the Lord that we read about in the book according to Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. And I submit to you on the authority of the word of God that he accomplished salvation for his people at the cross. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save sinners. God saves sinners. Who did Jesus Christ come to bleed and die for and save? The people that God had given him before the foundation of this earth. Jesus Christ did not come to make salvation possible. Jesus Christ came to achieve and accomplish salvation. That's exactly what he did at the cross. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a victorious Savior. We serve a real Savior, not just a potential Savior. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for the people the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. And He resurrected out from among the dead after He satisfied the wrath of God against us in order that we might be made the sons and daughters of God. You see, He tasted death for three days, but death could not hold Him. He arose. He ascended to the Father. He is exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And in the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, He ever lives to make intercession for us, beloved, and He is coming again to judge the living and the dead, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God saves sinners. I promised to ask you a question as I was introducing this sermon. Here it is. Is Jesus Christ your Savior, or is Jesus Christ your judge. The Bible tells us that this is the message that we've heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No impurities in Christ. None in the Father, none in the Spirit. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If your question this morning is, brother, what must I do to be saved? That's a good question. That's the question. Brother, what must I do to be saved? The words of Jesus are this. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brother, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved saved. You see, God saves sinners. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful and thankful that you save sinners.
Father, we acknowledge before you this morning that there is no good thing in us. Apart from the love that you set upon us before the foundation of this earth, we would perish in our sin and be separated from your love and grace and mercy for all of eternity. But Lord, we praise your holy name that those that you placed in Christ, those whom he effectually redeemed at the cross 2,000 years ago, will hear the word of God proclaimed and through the word of God and the power of your spirit that your effectual call on their life and your irresistible grace will woo them to Christ that when you give them the new birth that they simultaneously receive faith and repentance. God, that is our, our deep conviction this morning that you save sinners. Father, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed that to us. He actually accomplished that for us. We are accepted in him and in no other way as we stand before you. Lord, as we enter into this Christmas season, I pray that you would keep at the very forefront of our mind that evening in that stable when our Lord Jesus was born. Father, in very, very humble circumstances. But I pray, Lord, that that you would expand our minds and our thoughts as we take the time to meditate on the Christmas story and that you would help us understand that it begins in eternity past and that it continues into eternity future. And Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise now that you didn't leave the decision to us. Father, we were spiritually dead and spiritually blind and our hearts were hard. But Father, that you pursued us with the gospel and the Spirit of God, and you gave us the new birth, and you gave us faith, and you gave us repentance. Lord, would you give us perseverance now in all that we do? We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.